Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Runway by Oz Runways, the Android EFB you've been looking for from the makers of Australia's most popular electronic flight bag. For your free 30-day trial, search RWI in the Google Play Store or visit ozrunways.com. And by the Australian New Zealand edition of Spotters Magazine, the new e-magazine showcasing high-quality aircraft images from around Australia and New Zealand. Available for download each month direct to your PC or delivered straight to your iPad. Produced by aviation enthusiasts for aviation enthusiasts. Subscribe free at spottersmag.com. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 124 and the second in our series covering the people and personalities that make up the 2015 Australian International Air Show at Avalon in Victoria. I'm Steve Vischer, and along with my co-host Graham McCarran, roving reporter Michael Lee, photo guru Stephen Pam, and our sound engineer Analog L, we take you inside the trade halls and out to the flight line to give you this snapshot of just what this week-long event is all about. In this edition, Grant catches up with Group Captain Guy Adams about all things UAS, and chats with Jodie Davis about her latest aerobatic exploits. The platforms are capable of putting a presence over a particular spot 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I flew a Pitts and an extra 300L uh, up in King City, California. Micah catches up with Peter Denham-Harvey from the Australian Women Pilots Association about their Around Australia relay and with Ray Horton from the RJ85 firefighting aircraft. The aim is not only fundraising but an opportunity for women to fly together and have fun. Our tank is an external tank. It's mounted externally to the airframe. Lots of reasons why we did that. I catch up with Craig Duncan from the Airline Academy of Australia in Queensland to talk about their latest training programs at their newest base. We're also now out at uh, uh, Australia's newest and arguably best airport, uh, Brisbane West Wellcamp, just west of Toowoomba. And of course, no PCDU Avalon coverage would ever be complete without an addition of Timbo's tarmac. That'll be coming up a bit later. But first, Richard Woodward is well known to many in the aviation community for his work as an A380 check-in training captain with Qantas, as well as his role in the Australian and International Pilots Association. Well, Grant caught up with Richard on day two and found him displaying a, well, slightly smaller aircraft. Richard Woodward, it's not often that I see you uh, sitting here in a little helicopter instead of in a dirty great A380. How are you doing? I'm really good, Grant. It's good to see you, actually. Yeah, great to catch up and uh, find you just... There I was just walking along at Avalon and uh, here you are with this amazing new piece of technology. Yes, it is. It's my part-time thing when I'm not flying an A380. I'm flying a little tiny helicopter. It's 17-foot rotor blade, single-seat sports helicopter. It's for the sort of people who, you know, maybe want to buy a Ferrari or they want to fly a, drive a sports bike or yeah. drive a sports helicopter. Well, it's contra-rotating. You've got coaxial thrust in this thing. And how did you come about the design? Uh, well, we didn't do the original design. We bought it from a company in the United States and we own the intellectual property and design rights to the two, two models we've got. The coaxial design is fantastic because uh, they rotate in opposite directions. There is no torque. That's uh, all balanced out. So in other words, no need for a tail rotor. So we yaw the aircraft by extending little tiny flapper valves on the end of one of the rotors, which changes the drag on the rotor 
and hence the torque turns the helicopter. So straight away, uh, more e economical, 15% power to a tail rotor, we don't have to, it all goes to the main rotor. Wow, and a lot easier to learn to fly. Yeah, it is. It's quite a simple helicopter fly. Uh, I didn't show you the vision before the interview, but there's a vision of our other pilot hovering the he helicopter with his feet on the ground. Nice. Hmm, yeah, yeah, it's that's... fantastic. We think we, we think this one is a sports helicopter. It's for recreational, but the slightly bigger one we're going to make into a cattle mustering machine because no sticking tail rotors in trees and crashing when you're chasing a bull. Yep, no, it'd be great for that. Now, um, you currently have a little micro turbine sitting on it. Yeah, we do. Um, now, Pete was saying it's about 56 horsepower equivalent. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's flat out at about 70 horsepower. The transmission is the limiting thing, so the engine is downrated to about 58 uh, full power and 56 continuous. Um, they're quite thirsty. They burn about a litre a minute. The production model aircraft will probably have a piston engine. burns about 19 litres an hour and is less expensive to maintain. So we think for the market... Yeah. Piston engine is the way to go. Well, it's also a lot cheaper, like, you know, a quarter the price to get a good piston engine or less, like a fifth. Well, absolutely. That little gas turbine of ours is $30,000 to overhaul, whereas we can buy a new piston engine for about $15,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you practically just throw it away each time you need to overhaul compared to owning the turbine. But Well, yeah, it's it's got 500 hours overhaul time. What we'll do is at the 500 hours, we'll, we'll check it. We're going to fit a thing called a hums kit to the helicopter where we'll monitor all the download if the helicopter flies past a 3G tower or you take your USB stick out and plug it into your landline, it'll tell us what the helicopter's done, whether you've over-talked it, whether it needs servicing, whether the chip's sensing a chip in the engine, etc. So we'll know a lot about the helicopter and we'll be able to use that to maintain it. Now, I just still can't believe 56 horsepower and you're lifting a single person into the air under rotors. I mean, that, that's, you know, you look at the horsepower on what, a, a basic Robbie or things like that and... They're, they're bigger engines than that. Yeah, that's true. As I said, the rotor is efficient. When it's a coaxial, it's equivalent of about 1.4 times its diameter in a single rotor. So we get huge lift capability because the top rotor entrains the air and straightens it for the lower rotor. No tail rotor, so instantly, as I said, about 15% power that we don't need to draw off the engine. So the engine supplying the rotors, it's incredibly aerodynamically efficient. It doesn't care which direction it's going because it doesn't make any difference to it. Uh, so it's the most efficient for its size we can generate. Yep. And you've got a, is the swash plate on both rotors or just the top the No, top it's on, I know some of the model helicopters only have one. This is, uh, they're, they're complementary heads, they're exactly the same. So one rotor goes one direction, one goes the other. They both have swash plates, they both have cyclic, full cyclic control, full collective control. Now, I, uh, I understand this is not the uh, first helicopter you've ever flown. Uh, when we last had you on the show, we were focused more on the A380 and all, and all that was going on then. But uh, I hear you've been to Empire Test Pilot School. Yes, I did Empire Test Pilot School in 1982 when uh, the Falklands War was on, and um, that was really exciting. I flew about 147 hours. I flew about 30 different types of aircraft and helicopter. I came back to our flight test unit as a... Uh, as a test pilot. I'd, I'd graduated Ducks of Empire Test Pilot School so I was the first or second helicopter pilot in history to top the school and so I had a wonderful time at Arju, the research unit. Uh, really enjoyed myself and then the Air Force sent me to a ground job in charge of operational requirements for helicopters and I thought, oh, do I want to sit on the ground? I want to fly. So I resigned and I joined Qantas and that's why you and I met yes. previously. Yeah, yeah, on that previous chat. Yeah. So, okay, moving back to this little little baby, does it have a name? Well, it's called an Exron, and that's why the registration is Exron. It's, X is for the coaxial sentence, and uh, the, the, the ROs derive from historical uh, 
uh, terminology. We have an Xron and a Yron, for for instance. But we're going to call we call them the Coax 17 because it's 17 foot rotor, and we're Coax 20 because it's a 20 foot rotor. If we can think of a sexy name, we'll call it that when we market it. <laughs> okay, and it's it doesn't have any um, pod or anything like that. You're very much out. It's it's almost like some of the early uh, gyrocopters, where you, the Wallace Auto Gyros and so on, where you're just sitting on a seat on a on a boom and so on. Uh, are there any plans to to put streamlining around it and and make it a little bit more uh, something that the wife might let the guy fly type of thing? You know. Well, that, that's a good question. Uh, we're sort of appealing to the naked sports bike enthusiasts. You know, the guys who want to ride without a fairing. That's how it is at the moment. But we have designed a fairing. Uh, to fare in the nose and give you a bit more creature comfort. We don't see this the sort of helicopter guys flying in a rainy day that is going out on a Sunday to whiz round. Um, it's quite a small helicopter and I'm trying to keep uh, the design simple for cost reasons and also to make it easy for the people. So we won't ever put a full cockpit on that model. We will on the bigger ones, but that one is ride, get out and ride your motorcycle, come out and fly your helicopter. Okay, and it doesn't make that much difference in terms of you know one extra knot or two? No, uh, the engine's got more than enough power to push the aircraft to its V&E. It's only about 67 knot helicopter. Uh, we can go faster, but we may not. Um, so that's 130 kilometres an hour, you know, with your head in the breeze, with yep. your goggles on. Yep, that's a, that's a lot of fun. I've done yeah. that. So Richard, just before we all do, actually do disappear, we're back over here at the stand with the uh, the aircraft, and uh, we're looking at the uh, very small little engine you've got here. Can you tell us a little bit about a bit more about this engine? Yeah, this is a Hearth engine from Germany. Uh, it's two-stroke. It's uh, automatic oil injection, automatic fuel injection. It's a, it weighs about 30, 35 kilos, and we're working on the fact that it'll produce a 60 horsepower. So the gas turbine that's currently on the helicopter about a litre a minute, 60 litres an hour. This thing's 19 litres an hour, yep. and it's automatic injection, so no one can muck up the, the oil management. And it's got a pull starter if you really need it, and an electric starter. So we think it's, it's an ideal thing to try on the helicopter. It, value for money, you can't beat this engine. It's got twin ignition systems. It's, it's aviation rated. It's used in a lot of unmanned aircraft around the world. Okay. I thought I'd heard the, heard the name before. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just so tiny. I mean, I feel like huge compared to this engine. Well, Grant, I had uh, I had to get some bolts today to bound it to this engine mount, and I had to carry it in through security to the air show. So I'm staggering in with this engine in my hand. As I said, weighs about 30 kilos as it is without all the gear on it. And so the, they were laughing their heads off, had to put it down, and I said, do you want to run it through the scanner? And they said, no, I don't think so. I think it does one of these. <laughs> so, oh, that's uh, fantastic, mate. Yeah. And, uh, well, anything else you'd like to say about it? No, if people are interested, sorry, that's an aeroplane we are just talking about. If people are interested, look at our website as Worldwide Web Coax Helicopters.com, Coax, C O A X, and they can follow the uh, production of the helicopter. And if they're really keen, come and see us or send us an email. Awesome. Thanks, Richard. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Grant. We're sitting inside the trade hall at the Avalon Air Show, and I'm sitting here with Peter Denham Harvey, the Vice President of the Australian Women Pilots Association, the Victorian branch. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Micah. Now, we've been sent here by uh, one of your members, Cresha Ballantyne. Yes, that's right. Cresha's flying one of the legs on our Round Australia relay that's starting on the 2nd of March, which is Monday. Um, women pilots flying all around Australia. And describe in a broader sense the nature of this rally and what the uh, objective is. Okay, well, it, primarily it's a fundraiser for the Cancer Council um, by members um, of the Australian Women Pilots Association and other women pilots. Uh, so the um, aim is not only fundraising but an opportunity for women to fly together and have fun. 
And could you give us some statistics, such as how many aircraft and wind pilots you're planning on having and some of the stops that you plan on making? Sure. Well, we're um, flying uh, approximately 19,000 Ks around Australia. We've got about 60 pilots participating and we're visiting 56 airports around Australia, uh, flying in all sorts of different aircraft, fixed wing and rotary. Uh, so we've got um, Cessna 152s, we've got Warriors with a float plane, we've got military and civil helicopters, um, and we've got some, some commercial flights that are piloted by women pilots in, for example, Dash 8s, um, 737-800s. And how's the nature of the relay going to work when uh, a handover is made at, at an airport? Sure. Well, we've got um, a baton, um, and uh, so we'll be flying from mostly rural, rural locations, landing, meeting the next uh, relay pilot, handing over the baton, they'll be taking off and flying to the next location. So, for example, on Monday we fly out of Avalon on the main runway, um, and on Monday morning we fly to Leangatha, a handover to Bensdale, then to Orbost, and then to Malakuta, and that's when Cresha Ballantyne picks up the baton, takes it into New South Wales. Are you going to have any specific stops along the way to uh, promote the cause of this relay in the organisation, or is it a pretty much a on-the-run kind of thing? Well, we'll be stopping in most of the major capital cities of Australia, so that's where most of our promotion will be happening. But we're also working with media in a lot of the rural locations. And the relay will conclude in the uh, middle of April at the Australian Women Pilots Association National Conference in Launceston. Um, so that'll be our big conclusion. And what goes on at a conference like that in Launceston? Okay, well we have um, an educational program. Um, we have social activities for members to get together and to network. Um, we have an navig air navigation trial where members compete against each other, a bit like a car rally but in the air. Um, and uh, we have a conference dinner uh, as well. We're at the start of 2015. What does the year ahead hold for the Australian Women Pilots Association? What are your objectives this year and what are you planning to achieve beyond that? Okay, our primary objectives every year are to support women pilots. Um, so we support women in aviation from young girls just starting out as pilots, uh, working commercial pilots, um, right through to retired pilots. Uh, we offer scholarships to support pilot training because it's such an expensive thing to do. And our overall aim is to promote aviation in general and women in aviation specifically. And you just mentioned the scholarships just then. Our show loves promoting such opportunities for our younger listeners to embark on. Uh, just give us a description of uh, what opportunity that prevails. Um, well, all of our scholarships are training scholarships. Uh, so they range from smaller scholarships of uh, $1,000 or $2,000 up to scholarships of approximately $8,000. We have several major sponsors who uh, fund our scholarships each year and for the majority of the scholarships you need to be a member of the Australian Women Pilots Association. But in order to find out more about membership, you can go to our website and all the membership information is there, as well as the list of scholarships that we're giving this year. And how much are you planning on raising? What's your target goal? I think we're 
we're planning to um, to uh, raise $10,000. We're currently uh, past $6,000 and we haven't even started the relay. So I think we'll be doing fine. Um, maybe we'll be able to up, up the target to $20,000. And if anyone wants more information on this rally and to support the cause, make a donation, where should they go? If you search on the internet for Women Pilots Relay, you can find our blog and our um, Facebook page and also a link to the Cancer Council donation page. Okay, and that's a very good roundup of uh, the activities. Uh, Peter, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks, Micah. Group Captain Guy Adams, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going? Uh, fantastic. Thanks for having me. Cool. Now, Guy, I notice your um, your wings there on your, on your uniform uh, have the E. That means engineering? Um, in my case, it means uh, flight test engineering. Okay. So I'm not a, a, a flight engineer as people would traditionally think. Uh, I've uh, completed a 12-month test pilot course in parallel with test pilots. Uh, and in our Air Force, uh, that qualifies us to wear an E brevet. Okay. So what was your background to get to where you are now? Uh, I'm a degree qualified uh, engineer, aeronautical engineering. Uh, I did some maintenance work with the F-18s, uh, then did a staff job in Canberra and then was lucky enough to be selected to go overseas and do flight test engineers course. Uh, I then spent three and a half years in the research and development unit in Adelaide uh, and then for the next few years worked in test and evaluation on fast jets and helicopters. And, and now you're looking at remotely piloted aircraft systems or um, you know, unmanned aerial systems for the whole of defence? Yeah, so my, my role in Air Force Headquarters is uh, Director of Unmanned Aerial Systems. So my remit is really to try and start the process of normalising unmanned aviation. These platforms, are, you know, I genuinely believe, are here to stay. Uh, and to be honest, they do come with a number of benefits. Uh, so. We do need a little bit more work associated with how to normalise uh, these capabilities. And there are a number of differences that will require some work. And there's some really obvious ones. Uh, Aircrew medical status, for example. What medical status do the pilots of unmanned aircraft require? Uh, really simple ones that uh, sound really uh, trivial, like what uniform do these people need to wear? Do they need to wear a flying suit? Uh, do they need the fire protection that the, 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 the flying suits bring to people in manned aircraft. Uh, how do we manage their careers? How do we train them? What are the qualifications and skill sets associated with piloting uh, unmanned aircraft? And because unmanned aircraft allow you to design and build aircraft that are substantially smaller than manned aircraft, there ends up being a whole new class of aircraft types that uh, people will be familiar with as the quadcopters, etc. And again, these bring another set of smaller problems with respect to training and certification, etc. So it's basically I'm trying to put the framework in to allow defence to use unmanned aviation across the full spectrum of air power roles. Okay. In some of our previous uh, productions that we've done, we've uh, interviewed the folks uh, from in situ about their Scan Eagle product, which was uh, under trial here at one point. We've uh, interviewed the gang who have been running the Heron, uh, both when it was, they were first here at Avalon and then, then again last time at Avalon where they uh, officially unveiled it to the public. Yes. Uh, so we've had a lot of good chats with them about it. Now, now I understand we've finished using Heron in Afghanistan. Is that correct? Correct. So we have... Um Heron's role in Afghanistan is now over. At the end of that, rather than, because uh, the, the platform is leased, we, we don't own uh, the four aircraft that we, that we had uh, under the previous lease. 
we entered into a contract change proposal uh, and basically we've rolled that contract into a domestic or an Australian operating case. So we're looking to have two airframes here in Australia, two ground control systems here in Australia, and again to start looking at using Heron to work with CASA and Air Services and our technical regulators, etc., to start normalising the unmanned aviation space. Uh, if you looked at some of the timelines, if we didn't bring Heron home, we would have there would have been a bit of a gap in the Air Force operating a complex platform. So Heron is part of that strategy to continue. Um, uh, maintaining and developing the skill sets of, of operating those types of platforms. So with Heron, uh, my understanding is that's operating down at Woomera at the moment? Uh, correct. So under its current operating permit, uh, it's only allowed to fly either in Afghanistan or in Woomera in Australia in military restricted uh, airspace. Um, as we push Heron further into the future, if, if Woomera is the only place it's allowed to operate, it becomes very restrictive in developing the TTPs, etc. So we are looking to, to operate the platform outside of Woomera. I would suggest initially in military restricted airspace for a while, but we will be working with CASA and our services to see what other uh, areas that we can operate the platform as well. Okay. But that might be a little while down the track. But I imagine it would be quite handy for doing uh, surveillance of uh, bushfires and, uh, and natural disasters as we're seeing at the moment. There is an intent to um, discuss those types of roles, but again, uh, not until we believe the platform is ready. So uh, very much a learning process for us at the moment. Uh, and if and when we consider it is ready to do that, then uh, we will start talking to those agencies. Cool. Scan Eagle down the smaller end, it's a, it's a line of sight uh, UAS. Now that's, uh, that was trialled with Navy. Uh, are you able to say how those trials went and what the results are, or is that still being decided? Um, the, the results of the trials, I mean, um, Navy Minor 1942 has been cancelled. Uh, it was announced at the AAUS conference uh, earlier this week that 1942 ha has been wound up. Uh, but there is C, uh, what's now called C129 Phase 5, which people may have heard of JP129, Joint Project 129. C129 is the fifth phase of that, and it is to looking at the development of an, of an organic UAS capability for Navy. And uh, Army's also experimenting with little little units. Uh, I've seen some of it going off uh, off little catapults. And yes, so the, the, the Army um, is also obviously very interested in these capabilities. Yeah, very useful for the tactical guys on the ground. Um, they are also part of JP129 or Land129 as it's known for Army Phase 4, uh, and they are looking at the very the small UAS, the you know the less than two kilo backpackable type systems that the, the ground troops can use to look over the hill or around the corner. Now I hear that there's uh, some folks training with the Reaper, which is uh, the the latest version of the, what used to be the Predator. Uh, yeah, so the Parliamentary Secretary did announce uh, that we have five uh, operators training uh, with the US Air Force, and we, we have an engineer um, supporting some of the communications infrastructure. Really, that's that's Air Force's way of educating ourselves on what the true cost of ownership of these platforms are. It's an understandable paradigm that uh, think that unmanned aircraft result in less people required for, uh, for these types of activities. In reality, what we'll probably see with Triton and a Reaper uh, type platform is a greater capability for the same amount of people. Uh, when, you, when you look at what these platforms are capable of, and, and let's look at a Triton or a Global Hawk for example, the platforms are capable of putting a presence over a particular spot 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So the manpower required to support 
that activity, not just to operate the aircraft, but to support all the intel that comes down from that aircraft, is not insignificant. So by putting people with the US uh, training over there and being able to have a look firsthand at what the true cost of ownership of these platforms is allows us to inform any acquisition decisions that may occur in the future. So of course we've got people over there training with Reaper. That immediately raises the question in many minds, are we considering the Reaper as something for our, um, our manned suite of, of uh, vehicles? You're probably aware of the force structure review that's going on at the moment uh, that will lead to the next defence white paper. As part of that process, the requirement for an uh, unmanned overland ISR capability is likely to be considered. Uh, so at the moment, there is no project to acquire a platform of this type, but it is being considered uh, under the force structure review process that this may be part of the capability suite that we need for future uh, force structure. Up till now, uh, all the uh, UASs that we've mentioned have all been pretty much eyes in the sky. Uh, now, of course, if you can't see it, you can't target it, so they do have that kind of aspect. But uh, the Reaper, if we go down that path, is actually shown as having air-to-ground munitions and so on. Is that something that Australia would be considering, or is that at a higher high level and we're just assessing what the uh, options are of having that? Uh, look, as the Chief uh, has said, we will consider those options. You know, as part of the force structure review, uh, the ability to, to operate a platform that has persistence and a strike capability um, has demonstrated advantages in, and has demonstrated those advantages protecting our troops in Afghanistan over the last 10 years. Not only ours, but the allied ones that we've been using. So it, it kind of behoves us to at least consider that capability. As I said previously, we don't yet have a project to do it, but I think it, it, is, it is within our remit to certainly at least consider the possibility. Now, another factor that you've been mentioning is, uh, and we'll get to uh, to the Global Hawk and the Triton shortly, but you mentioned that with these eyes in the sky sitting up there, continuous presence, there's a lot of telemetry, a lot of data, and a lot of knowledge to be gained from that. And we're hearing stories that uh, intelligence agents are drowning in data because there's so much coming back from these eyes in the sky. Uh, is that a factor that you're considering? Not me directly, uh, so that's that's a little bit outside my remit, so I'm kind of trying to be capability agnostic, so to speak, and just look at supporting the platform to get the platform up there so that we can then undertake whatever role and services are underneath that. There are, and Air Force is certainly considering the requirement and structure required to support platforms of this type, um, but that's not directly in my remit. Okay. And how are you finding, based on experience and getting, keeping those platforms in the air, how are you finding uptimes and uh, level of support required? We're also hearing stories of uh, quite, a, quite a large number of people required per airframe to keep that continuous operation going. It, it depends greatly on the airframe. It's like any, you know, newer airframes tend to be a little bit less demanding than older airframes. But it also depends on the, the exact number of people required to support an operation depend on the type of operation and, and what sensors it has and what the bandwidth is, etc. So if you have a platform that has four different sensors and you know high bandwidth, you've probably got you know lots of people on the ground dealing with all that. Yep. You still may only need two people to get the air platform airborne and keep it airborne and a small team of maintenance guys. And the majority of the workforce is likely to be in the Intel process exploitation and dissemination function. And do you find that these aircraft uh, look like they're going to fit into our logistics structure quite nicely? Uh, they're not introducing anything majorly new compared to the manned aircraft that we have. They just no. slot right in. Since similar to like JSF has a different logistics infrastructure than what we, we're normally used to, so that will have as much of a challenge as a platform like uh, a Global Hawk 
Mont Triton, uh, etc. One of the um, differences that I'm, as part of my job, I want to try and look at is the interface between maintenance and uh, the aircrew and the operators. Uh, traditionally, in Air Force, there's a very clear interface between maintenance and the aircrew when they bring the aircraft back home. Uh, they go through whatever unserviceabilities might be uh, on the airframe. Uh, they'll talk to the technicians about what likely could have caused that. They'll write it up in the book or on the, on the computer, and then the technicians will go out and fix the plane. When the operators of the airframe might be 5,000 kilometres away from where the airframe is, and the system you know, lands and the maintenance guys literally just pick it up and never ever talk directly to the aircrew, how do we maintain that ability to you know, ask the, you know, provide the guidance to the technicians as to what deficiencies were? Now, you know, having said that, modern systems like JSF, Triton, etc., very lots of self-diagnosis capability and, and health and usage monitoring systems, etc. But typically, there's also a bit of benefit to be gained by talking to the guy and saying, "Oh, the radar did this or through this code, and I couldn't get it to do that," and that's a big help. So, just changing that culture might uh, is one of the areas that I want to look at as well. Yeah, that is a valid point, and everyone's very, very dispersed. They're not all operating yeah. in one airbase. Yeah. yeah, it does make a change. Mm. Okay, that does seem to be the way of the future, as you said, with F-35. And speaking of the way of the future, Global Hawk flew into Avalon on Saturday night, uh, staged directly out of Los Angeles, came down, and I believe non-stop all the way to Avalon. Is that correct? It came out of Guam. It was flown from California, so the pilots were in California. Um, it launched out of Guam, and it was about a 14-hour flight uh, to get it here. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you remember Saturday night, there were two cyclones. Um, operating around the country uh, so they had to give it a little bit of a they had to choose one of the alternate routes uh, for it to avoid the, the, the cyclone in the Northern Territory but uh, if you speak to the guys that flew it down and the, and the squadron commander here they had very good service from Air Services Australia uh, and their interface with CASA has been very good uh, so they could not have been happier with the support that they've gained so far uh, out of the Australian agencies. Were you involved in any way getting that ready to come down here? Um, I provided some support um, and advice to our airworthiness coordination and policy agencies. We just have a new set of airworthiness regulations that the, the chief issued last year that uh, categorises uh, unmanned aerial systems into four categories. And the way that the arrangements between the Civil Aviation Safety Authority and Defence is there's, there's two regulators in, in Australia. There's Defence and there's CASA. Uh, the Chief of Air Force is the Defence Regulator. He is the Defence Aviation Authority. Uh, and basically, an aircraft will either be state-registered, so a military aircraft, or civil-registered. If it's a state-registered aircraft, then as far as CASA is concerned, the Chief of Air Force has done his due diligence on making sure that it's airworthy and can operate in and out of airspace, etc. So we looked at some of the scenarios and what evidence we could gain out of the USAF to provide that advice. Um, and then we offered it to the chief to make a decision and we were all happy with it. So one of the mechanisms that we can use is to look at uh, what we either call uh, military airworthiness authority or national airworthiness authorities. Uh, and the chief can look at those and if they've issued a type certificate for an aircraft, then we just basically recognise the fact that they're a competent organisation to design, manufacture, operate, maintain the platform. And if they say it's good, then it's, yep. it's good enough for us. Uh, so we largely did that with Global Hawk, uh, with a few more discussions with the USAF guys. So that's that was kind of my involvement in that. Okay. So leaving Global Hawk, we go on to its uh, sister, you might say, the, or brother, the Triton. Younger brother, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, similar platform, but there are differences. Uh, Australia's got approval to buy up to seven at the moment. Uh, can you tell us what? Uh, how's Triton different to Global Hall? Firstly, the roles are very different. So uh, what we talk about in, in a lot of the airworthiness sensors is, is a concept known as configuration role and environment. Uh, so the role and environment will quite often affect the configuration. So in this case, the, the role and environment is very different to a global hawk. So global hawk is, to some extent, a, a U2 replacement. It's meant to be the high altitude surveillance aircraft uh, with long looking, side looking radars, etc., for overland type activities. The, the Triton is very much a, a maritime patrol asset. Uh, in our case and the US Navy's case, it is designed to work with the P8 Poseidon uh, to provide both persistence and response. Uh, and it, given our environment with a large coastline and lots of ocean to surveil, um, the persistence provided by Triton is, is critically important. So what changes have they done to, to support that? Uh, they've strengthened the wing uh, a little bit. They're expecting the aircraft that might suffer a little bit more due to turbulence operating over water. It has different radars and it has different electro-optical sensors. Uh, it also has some additional elements to support the maritime role. It has some anti-icing functions uh, and some other improvements from a certification basis based on the, on the core global. But it is part of the Global Hawk family, the Q4 family. Uh, it, it is just modified to support the maritime role. In terms of what you're doing, you're um, assessing its interaction with the uh, logistics, the structure of the force and so on, of how it'll work here in Australia. So again, there is a project office that, that is doing that. So there is a project office whose job it is to look at the manpower requirements, etc. Particularly with Triton and P8, we are looking very heavily to the US Navy to see how they're doing business. Uh, and if again we go back to the configuration role and environment, I would expect that uh, our configuration will be pretty much the same. The role and environment might be slightly different. So we may end up seeing ours being used slightly differently to, to the US Navy ones. Uh, with respect to training, again, the project office is looking at that, but there are a number of constructs that have to be put in place prior to Triton getting here um, that I'm also working on. Things like the pilot training paradigm. What are the qualifications and skills required of a Triton pilot? And that whole construct still needs to be worked through. Is there anything else you'd like to say on uh, UAS within the Australian Armed Forces, how that's uh, shaping up and where it's going? Uh, look, I think bringing Heron home was a really good idea, just to allow us to continue ticking over our, our, our techniques, tactics and, pro and procedures, etc., but also interfacing with CASA and air services, etc., to start normalising uh, that space. I mean, Heron's now been known to the public for four years or so, so having a Heron operate around the country should not be a surprise to anyone. If we can, if we can get Heron to operate out of a number of places, that, that would be a good thing. And then, you know, if and when something does replace Heron, then it, it should just be a smaller step as opposed to going you know, from nothing you know, to whatever that other platform will be. Excellent. Thank you very much for coming on the show. No worries. Hey, this is Grant. Hey, g'day, mate. How are you? I'm out here at the airport. I'm doing a bit of plane spotting. Oh, what a shocking coincidence. I'm doing some plane spotting too. I don't see you anywhere down here. Hey, take a look. Listen to that, mate. That's that brand new Boeing 737, the Retro Roo. Oh, the Retro Roo. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now too. I don't see you anywhere around here. Where are you? I'm at home. You're spotting from home? Yeah, I'm reading the Spotters Mag. Spotters Mag? You reading a magazine? I thought you were only into electronic stuff. 
I am into electronic stuff. That's how I'm reading the magazine. It's an e-mag, mate, e-magazine. You go to www.spottersmag.com and then you go down and find Spotters Mag Australia New Zealand and click on that and then bang, you're in there and you're reading it and it's fantastic. It's uh, online. You can read it on your tablet or on your uh, PC. It's great. Yeah, well, mate, you could also take a copy with you on your tablet out to the airport. Then you could have the sights, the sounds, and all the extra information from the magazine. That's fantastic, mate. A magazine by enthusiasts for enthusiasts. What more could you want? So better get that tablet out and get on to www.spottersmag.com right now. Winning. See you later. Navigate the long white cloud with Oz Runways. Oz Runways now has full support for New Zealand with VFR and IFR maps and all AIP volumes. Our intuitive interface makes Oz Runways the easiest to use electronic flight bag on the market. And unlike older products, everything you need is included in a simple annual subscription. So you're always up to date. Find out why Oz Runways has been the number one iPad electronic flight bag in Australia for over three years. Find Oz Runways on the iTunes store for a free download and a free one month trial. Upgrade your iPad to the best EFB. Try Oz Runways today. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it, this is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Uh, also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com Well, we're here with uh, Craig Duncan from the Airline Academy of Australia. Craig, thanks for spending some time with me. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about uh, Airline Academy of Australia. I see you here on the Queensland Government stand here at the Air Show. Very impressive stand and obviously uh, very proud of what you're doing up there. Look, we are, and, and thanks for giving us time and your your, uh, your listeners for taking time to, to listen to what we about what we do. Look, we're very passionate about aviation training. We've been doing it for 100 years, and uh, both in the pilot engineering space and, and a lot of work in the advanced training space, including also in flight attendant training and preparation. So, um, yes, we're passionate about what we do. We're in Brisbane at Archerfield, where we've been since the 1930s. We're also now out at uh, uh, Australia's newest and arguably best airport, uh, Brisbane West Well Camp, just west of Toowoomba, where our students, after a little over two weeks' training, have gone solo. The quality and the uh, price point is so attractive out there that our students are just really enjoying being out there and getting amongst it. WellCamp is such a good news story for aviation and we're hoping to spend some time up there in the near future with those guys. Um, I guess, uh, what, what is it that attracted you to that airport? Is it their attitude? Is it the facilities? Combination of both, perhaps? Oh, look, it's, it's, it's that and a lot more. It's a very well-designed, constructed and operated airport. So the quality is very high and its price point is very attractive. That's very important. 
The other thing is that that airport is focused on aviation. That is their core business. They are here for every aspect of aviation, and we'll see over the coming period, not only ourselves as aviation trainers, the public that are already flying there and very successful services, but every aspect of aviation, from maintenance organisations, research centres, uh, right through to the higher end of town uh, as part of a centre of excellence out there. It's a very exciting tale for, for not only Australian aviation, but for aviation for, for this part of the world. You talk about multifaceted. A lot of people, we say this often in this show, where people talk about pilot training and they think, oh, aviation, it's pilot training. But as you mentioned there, there's so many other aspects to it. Uh, flight attendant training is one, of course, I guess uh, you'd be looking at and also engineering. Absolutely. We've uh, got a very successful engineering school and not only do we do the, the in-house uh, uh, training as the first 11 months, a um, very core, important part of uh, any engineer's, aircraft maintenance engineer's uh, journey, we do a lot of theory, we do some hands-on practical to balance with that theory to give them the best possible start to their journey in aviation. But we don't stop there. We go through into the apprenticeship programs that we manage for a number of leading providers around the country through to advanced training. Uh, and it's very important that whether you're an engineer, whether you're a pilot, whether you're in flight attendant training, uh, or other aspects around the aviation disciplines, that we can follow you through your journey and work with you. Whether you come for us for your ab initio, your advanced, short courses, or other experiences such as in our simulator centre where we do block courses, uh, you, can, you can follow your journey through with the Academy. Now, I want to uh, focus obviously on the pilot training in a minute, but mm -hmm. uh, we had a discussion about, uh, before we started recording, about uh, your approach to flight attendant training. Now, yes. I must uh, I have some skin in the game there because my daughter is uh, looking at doing something like that. Can you tell us about your approach to it and how perhaps it differs from perhaps what's been done more traditionally? Absolutely. I guess our, our view is the airlines uh, know what they need out of their flight attendants, particularly in the technical space, and they like to direct that and we're happy to work with them. What our focus is about getting a, a, a young student uh, ready to become a, a flight attendant. So it's a preparation course. Uh, it's a high-quality, tailored uh, and, and quite a short course that's focused to take someone who perhaps has been a, a school student, get them ready for the workforce, to understand about a bit more about themselves, uh, and to understand customer service and the role of a flight attendant in that very important aspect of customer service on board the aeroplane, often at 30 odd thousand feet, often in you know, difficult circumstances, dealing with uh, difficult passengers, but being ahead of their game and delivering top quality service. Furthermore, about um, preparing them to get that important job uh, and working with them to make sure that they put their best possible foot forward um, in terms of securing that role. So therefore, preparing the future flight attendant ready for, for, for the role with airlines. We do that at a very attractive price point. Uh, we do that in a, in a series of modules, either in a week-long course or over a series of weekends. And we've got top quality industry and broader hospitality people involved in that program. Fantastic, and obviously you have a lot of interaction with the airlines yes. and obviously aircraft manufacturers as well. Yes, we've got a very uh, unique corporate structure where our focus is in fact the students and the industry. Our role since literally since aviation began was to, to deliver for the industry and we take that role very seriously. So yes we work with from the schools and the, uh, the recreational programs, the ab initio programs, universities, right through to the big end of town and internationally. Yes the, the larger manufacturers around the globe, uh, our focus is to deliver on their needs for the short, medium and long term. And, and it's always uh, uh, heartening to have our former students come back to us as we had a couple recently who got together, they were on the cockpit of a, a very large aeroplane in the Middle East, hadn't uh, caught up before and they realised they'd both trained with us. So they sent us a little note saying how, how their journey was going. So absolutely we work right through across all aspects of industry. 
let's talk about uh, let's talk about the pilot training. Let's first perhaps talk about your fleet. Um, yep. Obviously, uh, you know the GA fleet's a little bit run down these days. Um, you were telling me before we started recording here that you're looking at investing in newer aircraft. Look, our, our view, I think, yes, um, GA industry uh, has um, perhaps just, uh, some, some in the GSA GA industry need to step up. I think what we are focused our, our core traditional fleet for single trainers has been the Cessna 172. We both have our analog and uh, glass uh, environments to train in. Uh, we also have adopted over the last uh, less than a year, I guess now, uh, two uh, Technam twin aircraft. Uh, we're very impressed with that aeroplane. Why? The quality, the quality of the aeroplane, the price point's incredibly attractive. It's got a lower uh, environmental footprint. It's a lot quieter. Uh, it's a very good aeroplane, not only for the twin training, but for the complex phase of CPL. When you have a high quality, such a high quality aeroplane at the right price point, you can use that across your programs. So we have students uh, in a range of aeroplanes in their complex phase of their uh, uh, CPL, and they can choose. They've got again that that their choice is in the power is in their hands to choose. And many are now choosing the, the Technam Twin. They get a lot more uh, twin hours up, and they're airline ready if that's their journey. If their journey's into GA or other aspects of the industry, uh, there is a there is a, a 206, there is a 310 coming online as well. I'm interested about the airspace in that part of the world. Obviously, I'm based down here in Melbourne, so uh, you yep. know, I'm not overly familiar with the airspace around Toowoomba, but I would assume that it's uh, not as crowded as perhaps Brisbane or Sydney, well, especially Sydney, I guess. Sure, in terms of our, our WellCamp uh, campus, you're absolutely right. It's a very attractive uh, place to fly. And I think that you know those statistics of how quickly uh, students are flying so long and get through their program uh, is important. What's attractive about it? Yes, perhaps the traffic, um, uh, firstly. Secondly, the, the training area is right off the end of the strip. Many environments, including you know, perhaps at Ratchetfield, but you know, even down here in Melbourne, you have to travel long, long distances to get to your training area. You often have adverse weather. You have a lot of issues that, that compound to perhaps slow down your training and therefore, by definition, make it more expensive than it should be. We have some some uh, providers in this building, for example, who are charging 20 to, to 40% dearer uh, prices than we are for, for renting aeroplanes because of those inherent costs that they have in their business. We don't have that. So we pass that on to our students at saving and they therefore have a quicker, higher quality and cheaper product. I'm interested in community engagement. You know, I know up there in Brisbane they have some aviation high schools, something I don't know that we have down here in Victoria, but it's a fantastic concept. And you've obviously got other organisations like the cadets and all that sort of stuff. Are you finding a lot of interest from those sorts of groups, younger people looking at taking up aviation? Absolutely. And, and look, um, you know, yes, we are in Victoria, and, and, and I'm sure the Victorian government's uh, doing its thing with the education system down here. But in Queensland, we are privileged. Uh, the, uh, the education department has stepped up and over a number of years uh, uh, driven some growth in the aviation uh, sector within schools. So there are some schools that have aviation programs. So for example Aviation Hyatt Hendra, uh, we now are about to take their uh, students this year in year 11 and 12 and they'll be flying with us. They've got a, a line in their curriculum that is focused on aviation, aeronautical schools. Uh, then on a Wednesday they come and fly with us. Some of those students also fly with us on a weekend. So in their school period they're making use of that time. Uh, their parents, uh, bless them, have stepped up and are happy to invest in that training program, which is, you look, look, you know, aviation is not a cheap industry to get into, but the sooner you can learn to fly, as soon as you get your standards up and you maintain those standards, the better journey you will have. Uh, and the kids, look, they're just fantastic. The teachers are very committed, uh, very talented, and look, often very generous with even their own time to make sure those programs work. But it's not just aviation high. We deal with a number of aviation-related uh, um, schools uh, who are focused on their students. 
both in the public and private sector. There are, for example, a number of private schools with borders, uh, particularly in Toowoomba, uh, where WellCamp is an ideal place for them to train. Not just Toowoomba, though. In places like Warwick, where, where students, you know, we look around for things to do for borders on the weekend. We play, they play some sport. But what else we can we can do? Come to WellCamp. Come to learn to fly. Use that time wisely, and, and, and by the time you leave school, you, you've not only got a PPL, you can actually be well on the way to your, to your CPL. So um, there's a great opportunity in that space for school kids. Craig, you're so passionate just sitting here talking to you. I can see the enthusiasm for, for what you're doing here. Um, you've obviously got some history in the airline industry. Can you sort of take us back a bit about your journey through aviation? Oh, look, it was an interesting journey, and uh, as some of you may gather from my accent, I originally came from uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the Isles across the, uh, the Tasman. Um, I came across and uh, joined a little company called Anset, so it's an interesting journey through that process. Uh, look, I've been very privileged, and I've worked with some very talented people through the highs and lows of aviation, and yes, I've learned a lot, um, but I'm also very privileged to have a, a great team at the Academy and dedicated people. You know, those guys on the weekends and evenings in their own time are working well above and beyond. Why? Not for themselves, but because they see what we do. It's not hard when you go out and you see the young kids of today who are the future aviators and aviator leaders of tomorrow get excited and motivated about what they're doing. That is infectious. It rubs us on us and absolutely we become passionate, passionate and motivated to drive what we do. Well, that's what we need. We need to see more people with, with this sort of positivity and this sort of positive attitude. It's a really refreshing thing to see in my view. So, Craig Duncan, uh, thanks very much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. And thank you for your time. I'm now sitting in a body of an RJ85. Some of you will recognise this aircraft more as a BAE 146. However, this doesn't carry passengers. This carries something more important. That is fire retardant. For those listeners from Australia who have been affected or come close to bushfires, you would have seen the sights of this aircraft during the recent summer bushfire season. I'm sitting here with Ray Halton, who comes from Conair and is also the director of the RJ Operations. He's here in Australia with the RJ aircraft as the captain. Ray, thank you for your time and welcome to the show. Thank you, my pleasure. Before we start talking about the aircraft and the operations, tell us a bit about your background and what's uh, led you to here. Well, I've worked with Conair for about 30 years now and uh, started as a our lead, our bird dog pilot, worked my way up through tankers and uh, eventually got myself uh, into the operational side of the company and uh, helped develop this airplane. And about two years ago, we started on the program. And tell us a bit about the background of Conair coming back from uh, Canada, where you guys are based. Uh, Conair is based in Abbotsford, which is a community just outside of Vancouver on the West Coast in British Columbia. And uh, we've been there for almost 50 years now and been in the firefighting business that long. And so our, we have a fleet of 55 aircraft, including tankers and bird dogs and lead aircraft. And uh, we've, we're probably the largest in the world private organization of what we do and uh, have developed numerous air tankers uh, over that time. The RG-85 being our latest and most uh, modern air tanker. And as I said in the introduction, people will recognize this as a BAE-146 or its later variant, the RJ. What modifications did you have to do to this aircraft from a typical passenger model to this uh, firefighting model? Well, the major modification, of course, is the installation of the retardant tank. and. Uh, our tank is an external tank. It's mounted externally to the airframe. Uh, lots of reasons why we did that. Uh, one is to, pervert, to pre- preserve the uh, integrity of the airframe, not to weaken it, not to uh, d- disturb the structure whatsoever. So the tank is actually wrapped around the fuselage and hangs from the main wing of the airplane. So the wing carries the tank. Uh, the fuselage is, stays uh, uh, 
uh, fully to its original strength that it was designed by the manufacturers, able to uh, bend and, and uh, flex as it's supposed to. And, uh, and so it's, it has had zero impact on the actual airframe. We then uh, stripped the interior out, and the idea is for that is just if we, the lighter we can get the inside of the airplane, the more retardant we're able to carry in our retardant tank. And uh, in, in the way we've built the airplane, we're still able to pressurize normally so we can climb up to high altitude, gain the advantages of uh, better fuel economy and higher speeds that come with the higher altitude. So um, it was a, a big piece of our design and, and we designed it fully in conjunction with British Aerospace themselves who were the original manufacturer of the aircraft. And how does this aircraft handle or fly differently with the uh, modifications and how do you fly the aircraft differently from its normal uh, missions? Well, the, the good news is that the, having the tank on the outside has, has done zero to affect the handling characteristics of the airplane. It handles exactly the same way it did uh, without the tank on it and uh, there is no other operating restrictions applied to the airplane than it, than it had when it was in the passenger uh, configuration. So the airplane has not been compromised at all with the tank on the end uh, or hanging off the belly, but the good news about it is that the airplane um, is a great performer around fires where we have to slow down and man usually have quite a bit more maneuvering that we need to do. We need to be able to go downhill and ma manage our airspeeds and uh, the RJ-85 was designed to do that from the outset even as a passenger carrier. It used to fly in and out of London City Airport which had steep approaches and short runways and uh, this aircraft was very capable for that and has adapted to its new role really well so really the only difference in how we fly it is that we're flying it lower to the ground more often and uh, and we're using it to drop on fires but normal flight characteristics aren't much different than when it was in its normal passenger role. And uh, last night we had the uh, nighttime demonstration here at Avalon and you folks both in the RJ, the Hercules and the Era Commander? Correct. Uh, did a demonstration. Uh, just run us through what, what the process was for all three aircraft working together to uh, put out a fire. Well, basically, the, uh, we tried to demonstrate in a very short period of time what we do over a fire. And the, the Aero Commander, Turbo Commander, is our lead aircraft or our, our bird dog aircraft. It usually goes in first. It usually has the air attack supervisor on board, who is the one that determines how the fire should be fought and where the retardant should be put. And they orbit the fire and uh, make those determinations, and then they show us where they want to drop. So in the demonstration last night, you would have seen the bird dog go by followed by the two tankers uh, as kind of a mock show me run if you like or a demonstration run for where he wanted the drop and then he picked up uh, the C-130, the Hercules first and showed him a drop while we orbited overhead and watched which is what we'd normally do over a fire. The second tanker would watch the first drop and then uh, the uh, bird dog came around after that drop, picked us up and brought us in to tag on and extend the first drop, which is not uncommon to what we normally do over a fire. We generally work together and, and work to uh, build a line along the side of a fire. And it's only been the first two months of 2015 and already we've seen some very horrific looking bushfires from Victoria, South Australia where I live and Western Australia. Uh, you're here on the uh, on a contract with the Victorian government, so just explain to the listeners how the contract works and how you end up being deployed interstate. Well, the contract was actually uh, worked through NAFSI, which is your national firefighting side of the world, and and yet the state of Victoria, I believe, was was the the one that initiated the the process, and so we're here on a trial basis uh, while they they uh, analyze and um, just I guess determine 
the suitability of the large air tanker program. And uh, however, they're very proactive in that if other states or areas or agencies uh, have a higher fire hazard, they're quite happy to share that. And that's what happened in the case of the Adelaide fires and the fires just outside of Perth was that it was quiet in Victoria at the time, so they, uh, they shared the resource, which I think is, uh, is the uh, best thing that, uh, that, that works the best for the larger air tankers because we're able to move fairly quickly and fairly rapidly to new areas and, uh, and uh, so it could be used more on a national basis. And I should add on a personal level, I'm from Adelaide, and uh, my house was near the uh, recent Samson Flat bushfires so I was very grateful to see uh, all three of you show up in uh, Adelaide which was good. Um, Your work has obviously taken you across Australia literally. Uh, How have you found the experiences working in different states and working with the uh, local authorities and also with our local air traffic control and the like? It's been uh, nothing short of terrific. The, the people in Australia in general have just been great. They've welcomed us with open arms. Uh, the, the air traffic control folks have worked uh, their magic to accept us into their into their system and allow us to work uh, basically unimpeded. They've worked very hard to integrate us with the normal uh, airline traffic and other traffic around and let us to do our work as best we can and and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, talk about all the firefighters on the ground that do the, the real hard work and and uh, they've been ter- tremendous to work with and uh, and we've been able, very happy we've been able to do some support for them because at the end of the day they're the ones that do the hard work. No, I do, uh, I do agree with your sentiment and uh, Australia has a very largely volunteer contingent of uh, firefighters so it's uh, it's a big it's a big task for the country and very unique and be thankful for that if any of the other areas I worked in North America you don't see that kind of volunteer system and and I think what Australia has is is second to none it's amazing and it's a great thing that you have here before we go are you able to give us some uh, numbers and statistics for the aircraft how much uh, retardant you carry and some of the speeds <clears throat> that you'd fly at sure the, the tank holds 11,350 liters of retardant uh, it holds uh, over 12,300 uh, liters of water, if you straight straight water, because it weighs a little lighter. The speeds of the aircraft have been unaffected by the, the tank in- install, so we'll typically cruise to the fire at speeds around 350 to 370 knots. And, uh, over the fire, though, the, the unique design of the RJ-85 is it, it can slow down and and, uh, and get down to the speeds that are required for dropping retardant and keeping retardant uh, in, on the ground in a nice pattern. So uh, we'll drop at about 125 knots or so, and we drop at about, uh, and I apologize for speaking in feet, and, and but uh, we'll, we drop at about a, between 150 and 200 feet above the tops of the canopy of the, of the, of the area. I, I can assure you, majority of our audience uh, appreciate the imperial system more than the metric. Being uh, a lot of them being into aviation and pilots, that's perfectly fine. There's some uh, there's some interesting. Uh performance figures there. Yeah, the airplane is, uh, was really, uh, has really come into its new role very well. It's been a great uh, morph into the air, from an air tanker uh, role because it, it, when it was designed to go in and out of London City, for example, really steep approaches and short runways, uh, that's kind of exactly what we get ourselves into when we're fighting fires. We need to go down steep hills and we need to be able to control our airspeed and this airplane does it really well with the amount of flap and, and uh, the uh, air brake that's on the back of the airplane. Aside from Australia, where else does uh, does this aircraft and its team go? Uh, North America primarily. Uh, right now we have contracts in uh, in the USA, 
So with the U.S. Forest Service, we have two of our airplanes on contract. Uh, so far, we've built three of these. Uh, this particular one we're sitting in as a spare and can be picked up by anyone. And uh, we're also building two more. And so uh, between working in the United States and somewhat in Canada last summer, this is that's, uh, the third role it's had is down here in Australia. And what, it, what has the undertaking been like to bring the aircraft and the crews along for this period of the contract? Well, it was a, it was a big undertaking, but uh, exciting all the way through. I mean, the, the RJ-85 was a commuter airplane, so it was typically had legs of about three hours for fuel, and uh, and so our our legs from uh, North America, say to Hawaii, in the middle of the Pacific, was about six hours. So we had to put in a ferry fuel system in the airplane. So we actually have bladder bags that uh, we put in the fuselage and feed them uh, into the wing tanks to then feed the engines and, and uh, because the airplane is fully pressurized these bladder bags were actually collapsed by the pressurization and just self-fed the the wings when required we just turned a series of valves on to allow that to happen so um, it was a, it was a big undertaking for this airplane but uh, ended up being basically a, a non-event coming down it took us about 23 hours to get here well uh, anyone that has come near a bushfire is involved with the uh, bushfire service and and Australia in general. We're very grateful for your presence here. Thank you very much for your time and all the work you folks do in the country. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure for us to be here and thanks to uh, all your listeners for all the great treatment we've had. No worries. And if they want to read up more on you folks, where can I go find any more information? There's a couple of websites. Uh, the one that's been following us down here is RJ, uh, RJ85 Australia. Uh, it's put on by Field Air, who's the company we're working with here. Uh, they're based in Ballarat. And also our own company website, conair.ca in, uh, in uh, Canada, uh, has more information on all our fleet, including this airplane. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. Jody Davis, last time we spoke to you, you were just staggering out of Stephen Gale's jet. How are you going? Very well, thank you. How have you guys been? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Now, it's been a, uh, about a year and a half since that uh, escapade in the uh, S211 and, uh, and up at Ozfly. You've been a busy lady. I have, yes. The past year and a half has flown by. I don't know where it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you've gone from uh, Ozfly back to Geelong and then area, and then um, now you're up at uh, Pelican with Matt. Yeah, so... Um in the past year, as far as aerobatics goes, I think um, we had the national championships just after I spoke to you guys, and I um, was pretty happy with how that all went. I came second in that one, and um, since then I've just um, taken some time off the aerobatics and taken a, a bit of a step back to um, work on other things and still kept my hand in on the judging okay. at the competitions. Yeah, well, that, that, it's good to be able to judge and sort of give back as well, and uh, it's when you're judging others it sort of feeds back into your own aerobatics doesn't it oh yeah it's definitely um good training to see what the judges see and um make sure that when i am up there in the performance zone that i can present well and and um yeah present in a way that gives them exactly what they want to see so on the aerobatics front uh, what kind of aircraft are you um, want, wanting to fly and or flying at the moment uh, at the moment, I haven't been flying much. Um, a few months ago, I did go to Oshkosh. So whilst I spent some time in America, um, I flew a Pitts and uh, an extra 300L. Um, and that was with the two-teamer academy, Sean D. Tucker's school uh, up in King City, California. Um, that was an amazing experience, really great. Um, met loads of wonderful people at Oshkosh. Um, 
pilots and your know, aviation enthusiasts alike and um, I got a great opportunity with the EAA Air Venture um, Air Races. Uh, Eric White, one of the guys who's on their group, um, took us in a Cirrus uh, over to the Decathlon factory. That was an amazing experience. So, yeah, other than that, uh, what I'm flying now is um, just getting back current again and um, shortly getting into something a bit more uh, high-powered, like a laser or an extra, to um, step up the next level in competition. Oh, yeah, that would be a nice one to fly. I've been in a, in, um, a couple of extras and, uh, yeah, they're very much a strap-yourself-in-and-go aircraft. Oh, I've um, been having a lot of fun with the team uh, in the extra, flying with Eric, Matt's engineer, and flying with Matt himself. Just, yeah, learning a lot about the machine and, and what it can do, and and uh, especially things like flick rolls and things like that. <laughs> Lots of fun. Oh, yeah, definitely watching the world go round and round and round. But uh, speaking of Matt, um, and you mentioned before you're, you're working with Matt, you're up at Pelican. Yes. Are you able to give us an overview of what you're doing on the team? Oh, it's um, a little bit of everything. So I'm now the... Um, as part of the the team of Matt Hall Racing, I'm the domestic business development manager and marketing. Um, so it's a little bit of everything. We've had a very busy few months, obviously, preparing the team and um, the difficulties of having the plane not being shipped back to Australia to so Matt can train and so the team can practice all their processes and, and procedures and things. Um, so the race plane has remained in Germany during the off season. Uh, we've had a busy season preparing for the first race in Abu Dhabi, which was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then other than that, we've also been moving um, our whole hangar from Maitland down to the Belmont um, Airport. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been very busy and setting up the new office. That would definitely keep you occupied. Do you get much chance to go with the race team overseas or are you, um, as domestic manager, staying home? Yeah, at this stage, um, my job is basically to stay in Australia and, and manage the domestic side of the business. Um, I hope to join the team at the last race of the season in Las Vegas this year. Um, and then we'll see what happens next year with how busy the team is and, and where it's expanded by then. But um, we're seeing a lot of new development uh, within the business and the team, which is great. Um, you know, lots of um, opportunities for great sponsorship, especially... Um, you know, with the beginning of the season being so strong and, and coming second, it's um, looking like really good things for us this year. Oh, that's great. Anything else you'd like to say? Um, you know, it's been a whirlwind, but it, it's looking pretty good for you at the moment. Yeah, things are going really well. I'm just sort of taking one day at a time and trying to keep up. Yeah, it's great to sort of be down here at the air show and, and seeing everyone and catching up with everybody. It's going to be a busy year. We'll... we'll take some downtime and some flying time whenever we can get it <laughs> <laughs> excellent well good luck getting current and back into the air again um, i know what it's like to be tied to a desk and not able to get some altitude so uh make the most of it and uh yeah we're looking forward to seeing you in the skies again soon thanks very much thanks for having me now it's time for timbo's tarmac live with timbo Timbo dude! Hello Grant, how are you mate? Not too bad, after that uh, wonderful introduction, live to the mic. Live intro, haven't had one of those before, very and special. Al's feeling all special because he got to meet you at last. <laughs> <laughs> how you doing man? Very good, thanks pal. That's uh, good. Now, uh, what's news in the world of Timbo's tarmac? Well, the stealth aircraft have been replaced with real aircraft today, so yeah, that's good. Yeah, but uh, no, very good. We've uh, finally got some aircraft in today and things are moving, so uh, we're looking forward to a busy weekend. Just hope the weather holds up for us now. We've well, got a great collection of 
trainers, uh, windshields and uh, CT4s as far as we can see. Yeah, more parrots than we know what to do with. Yeah, but you do have the Hudson, you've got Trapo's DC3. Yep. And then there's, uh, yeah, I've got the Meteor and the Sabre. Yep, Mustang, Mustang, P40. Alan Arthur's P40, of course. We're away from Tamora. Yeah, and the Boomerang and the Spitfire. Yeah, that's a nice view. Yeah, just caught up with Darren Craven and his windshield on the way in and uh, also caught up with the other Darren, Darren Crabb, Buster. Buster. Gave him congrats on uh, getting the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Getting the, the Sabre. Yes. And uh, Berkey, who's uh, now gone from uh, propellers, he's now flying um, the, the Meteor. He is. He flew the Meteor in the other day and he did the uh, check flight yesterday to remember how to fly it, so he's happy. Yeah, well, it's the kind of aircraft that you take off and go, hey, I need to land. There's not a lot of fuel in that. No, well, uh, I think he hadn't been in it for quite some time, so he uh, sat yeah. in it for about two hours and remembered all the switches did, and then uh, <laughs> went for a quick check flight just to make sure he knew how to do it. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, so what else, anything else coming through, or is that pretty much it as far as you know? Well, at this stage, that's it, unfortunately. Yeah. We were hoping for some more, but that, that's it for now. Yep. And uh, how's everyone treating? I noticed that you're not in a golf cart this time. You actually, uh, you've got a like a tray truck are they getting you to do deliveries and everything uh no this is actually an officially approved tow vehicle now oh wow. yeah yeah it uh, unbogs helicopters oh there you go yep. am i is it safe to ask which one <laughs> big black augusta down the back there oops <laughs> she sank a little did she it sank a lot <laughs> not for, not as far as the hawk did though yeah oh no uh, up to the tanks oh my god yeah where did they park the hawk Right at the front oh, gate. Oh, the one at the front gate. Front gate. Yeah. Sank to the tanks. Sank very, very much to the tanks, yes. Oh, dude. Took a bit of digging out, that one. Oh, well. But, uh, yeah, no, that was because it was a bit damp early in the week, and uh, yep. it happens when the ground gets wet and you're pushing across grass. Yep, yep, there is that. They, they thought they could tow, but oops, not quite. Not quite. No, all good otherwise. Um, our uh, camera's all done and pretty. I hope you've seen that. Beautiful. In fact, we were... We had to go out recording some rappers for the, uh, the uh, first Avalon episode in front of them, but I think there was some sound issues or something. Uh, yeah, Steve wants to redo them on Skype. I'm like, oh, that doesn't have the ambience of the of the beautifully painted camera. That, no, that was a good. That was. Uh, it's come up nice. We're happy yeah. with that. So hopefully now she can put in the hangar and we can uh, save on some of the work. Well, there's quite a few uh, aircraft getting parked down here now. Yeah, um, they're going backwards and forwards, and, and they're going to be using the hangars for a bit more storage now because they're all empty, and there's a lot of empty hangar space up there. Yeah, well, you're putting dibs in or something? Definitely, Canberra first. <laughs> okay, anything else you want to say while we're here? No, we're, uh, we'll march on, yeah. get through. It's been a long week, a couple of days to go. Looking forward to getting home. <laughs> Ground operations, yeah. Yeah, that's us. AGO, we make it so. <laughs> oh, you're certainly telling everyone where to go on the ground. That's it, mate. We always tell people where to go. <laughs> Timbo, thanks a lot. It wouldn't be an Avalon without a Timbo's tarmac. Thanks, mate. Good to see you again. Cheers. Well, there you go. Well, I tell you, you can't get any closer to Avalon Grand Ops than Timbo's tarmac without walking out there yourself and not getting arrested in the meantime. And my compliments to Analog L for that great live intro as well. I knew we'd get him into the show somehow. Well, a great collection of interviews there, and I very much hope you enjoyed them. There's still plenty more Avalon 2015 fun to come in the next episode of PCDU, which we'll be releasing in another week or two. Well, if you're new to our show, why not take a look at our back catalogue of programs, including coverage just like this from Avalon 2013 and 2011, and even Oshkosh 2011. You can find all that and more on our website. Still can't get enough? Well, you can hear us every week on the Airplane Geeks podcast at airplanegeeks.com with our Australia Desk Report, covering all the week's local aviation news stories. Archives of that report can be found at australiadesk.net. And keep an eye on our social media sites as well for the release of our Avalon 2015 video highlights package. I'm Steve Vischer, and on behalf of the entire PCDU team, thanks for enjoying the ride with us. We'll talk to you again soon, but in the meantime, take care and fly safe.
You've been listening to Plain Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, Alan Van Page, and Micah Lee. Full show notes for this and all our episodes are at plaincrazydownunder.com. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and on Facebook, Google+, YouTube and Vimeo. Feedback, suggestions, advertising inquiries. Email them through to contact at plaincrazydownunder.com or mail to Post Office Box 70, Cranburn, Victoria, 3977, Australia. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. <laughs>